So if you're experiencing a sense of deja vu tonight after hearing that passage and seeing me stand up here, you're not imagining things. Uh, I did actually preach on this passage five weeks ago <laughs> at the end of December. Um, and I, I momentarily considered just recycling that sermon uh, to see if any of you would notice. <laughs> no, I wouldn't actually do that. Um, in fact, I, I really appreciated actually returning to this gospel passage um, so quickly and exploring it from a new angle. Um, and I, I hope you'll also appreciate the chance to revisit this familiar story with me tonight. So for those of you not here for my last sermon or, or who haven't committed it to memory, I forgive you, um, <laughs> I, I looked at how different people in the story, how Simeon, Anna, and Mary herself responded to Jesus. But as I came back to the story, um, especially now in the season of Epiphany, I wanted to ask a different question. What does this story of Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple and meeting two prophets what does the story tell us about Jesus himself? And this is a very appropriate question to ask during the season of Epiphany, because Epiphany means the revealing. And during Epiphany, we celebrate and remember the many different ways in which Jesus revealed himself to us during his time on earth. And as it turns out, this question of what the presentation tells us about Jesus, uh, I found it to be a fascinating question, because it leads us to ask, why does Jesus need to be presented in the temple? After all, Jesus is God, fully human, but also fully God. And it seems a little strange that God would need to be presented to God in the temple. But Mary and Joseph are following the law of Moses, uh, which requires that every firstborn son be presented and redeemed. And we find this command in Exodus 13, and I'm, I'm going to read this to you. Um, because I think it's worth reading this passage. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now, of course, Jesus is not a normal firstborn son, and instead of needing to be redeemed, he's the one who will do the redeeming. And, and Jesus, of course, doesn't need to be reminded that God rescued the people of Israel from Egypt because he himself did the rescuing. So why does Luke tell us specifically about the presentation in the temple and emphasize it with these prophecies from Simeon and Anna? And I think that here, what Luke is doing, or one of the things that Luke is doing, is emphasizing what Jesus himself says explicitly in Matthew 5, and that is that Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is presented at the temple in line with the law and what the law requires, but Luke emphasizes to us through the words of Simeon's prophecy that Jesus has come to fulfill the promises of the law and the prophets 
the promises of redemption for Israel and through Israel for the whole world. And how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? By bringing about the kingdom of heaven and overcoming the kingdoms of the world. The story of Exodus, which is the background to the requirement that Mary and Joseph are fulfilling, is a foreshadowing of the establishment of God's kingdom and the defeat of the kingdoms of the world. And we see this if we turn specifically to the story in Luke 2. If we look at verse 32, Simeon says that Jesus is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. In these words, Simeon points us to the truth that Jesus brings with him the kingdom of God. This is the glory of Israel because it means that a descendant of David will rule forever. And it's hope for the Gentiles, for the rest of the world, because this kingdom is for them, too. But just as we see in the story of Exodus, inaugurating a new kingdom inevitably means conflict with the old. Alongside Simeon's joyous praise about seeing God's salvation, Luke also records the harder words of the prophecy. Simeon says, starting in verse 34, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The coming of the Messiah is cause for great rejoicing, but it also brings conflict as the kingdom of God comes into contact with empire, with the kingdoms of the world. And as we heard in our reading from Malachi tonight, thank you, Karen, the coming of the Lord is both deeply longed for, but can also be deeply uncomfortable. The prophet says, Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And we see this sudden coming of Jesus into the temple in the presentation. But as Simeon does, Malachi continues, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. However much we may long for the coming of the kingdom of God, its coming also brings sometimes painful conflict as the kingdom of God encounters the kingdom of the world. Now I, at least, and I assume many of you, oftentimes immediately think of this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world in terms of persecution. And persecution is, without doubt, a very real way in which the kingdom of heaven is in conflict with the kingdoms of the world. However, in in our particular context here in Wheaton, Illinois, we don't typically encounter persecution. Um, Maybe uncomfortable situations, uh, especially as the U.S. becomes increasingly non-religious. But few, um, if any of us in this room, have experienced the depth of rejection and persecution that other Christians Um, right now in different places of the world and certainly throughout various times in history have experienced. But I think especially when we read this passage from Malachi alongside Simeon's prophecy, there's another way in which we can see the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world come into conflict. And that's within both the community of the church and within our own hearts. The coming of Jesus is a very good thing. It's very good news. But 
It can also bring painful moments of cleansing and refining as we seek to live as citizens of God's kingdom and not citizens of empire. Uh, I'm reminded here of Augustine's uh, famous and sort of funny prayer where he prays, uh, make me chaste, but not yet. We're here in this room tonight. All of us are here in this room tonight because we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And we, but we also know that Jesus' kingdom has not yet come in its fullness, which means that we not only see but experience those conflicts between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world that Simeon and Malachi and the Apostle Paul and St. Augustine and, and many others have described. So what I'd like to do in the remainder of our time tonight is explore just a few tension points between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the world, specifically uh, power and money. Now, these conflict points might resonate with you. Um, You might have your own points of conflict in mind as I'm preaching tonight. And I want to say to you that my goal is not to discourage us, but rather to encourage us to lean into the refining process. Because even though conflict and change can be painful, God's kingdom is always better than we can even imagine. It's very good news that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and to inaugurate his kingdom. And I want to, as we journey through this passage tonight, invite you to keep growing into that kingdom, um, even when that growth involves refining as we're reformed into the image of Christ. So the first conflict I want to look at uh, is the conflict that is perhaps most obvious, which is between the con- the God's kingdom on the one hand and the literal kingdoms of the earth or nations on the other hand. And I think that all of us are tempted at times to think that the success of God's kingdom or at least the implementation of the values of that kingdom depends on the success uh, or perhaps the failure of particular political ideologies. In short, we confuse the kingdom of God with the political structures of our nation or with a set of political ideas. And we begin to think that we need to amass power for ourselves or for our political party in order to help bring that kingdom into being. And as much as this uh, can seem like a particularly new and pressing problem right now, I imagine you, like me, have seen many articles about the rise of Christian nationalism. Uh, This is something that Christians have been tempted to for years, centuries, probably. Uh, I recently read a book um, that was titled A Theology for the Social Gospel um, for one of the classes that I'm taking uh, by a man named Walter Rauschenbusch, and it was published in 1917. Uh, And Walter Rauschenbusch was part of a movement that believed that the kingdom of God could be brought about by concerted political and social action by Christians. But what really struck me the most uh, in this book is his absolute confidence, just absolute confidence, that liberal democracy, right, which is the the structure of America and the uh, values on individual liberty that have been part of uh, our nation since America's founding, that liberal democracy is the crucial key for bringing about the kingdom of God in the world. Now, I certainly agree that uh, liberal democracy has a lot going for it, but I think that 100 years later, we can all say that liberal democracy is not exactly the key to bringing about the kingdom of heaven. It can bring about a lot of good, but also a lot of conflict. It's not the vehicle to more fully bring about the kingdom of God. Now, at this distance, we can see Rauschenbusch is, uh, that name is hard to say, his uh, undue optimism. 
about the role of liberal democracy in advancing the kingdom of God. But where might we, either individually or in our communities, be making the same mistake? Where might we be equating the kingdom of God with certain types of political positions or political power? And I will say, as citizens of a liberal democracy, it sometimes can be difficult to separate the kingdom of God from political positions, because certainly some positions are more in line with kingdom values, and also because we have the privilege of living in a nation where we can influence policies. And I think it's a good thing that we can advocate for laws that mirror the justice and peace of the kingdom of God, or vote for people who we believe will advocate for those laws. But for me, when I'm thinking about this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world, a really helpful gut check to see where I'm elevating the kingdom of, of the world over God's kingdom is the presence of fear. Because here's the truth about the kingdom of God. Nothing can stop it. God is always already at work in the world around us. And while God invites us to join in the work of the kingdom, we are no more capable of halting the kingdom than we are of stopping the rotation of the earth. And so when we begin to catastrophize or compromise on principles because a candidate promises to protect us against something we fear, we begin to villainize those with a different view, we're probably aligning with empire and not with the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of the world tell us that we need power in order to overcome fear. Jesus tells us to fear not, for he has overcome the world. So how do we deal with this conflict in ourselves and in our communities? And of course, some have answered that question by suggesting that we just withdraw from political engagement altogether. But I, I think for most of us, what it means is constantly asking the Holy Spirit to do that work of purifying and refining in our hearts, refining us from manufactured fears and from the desire for power. It also means constantly reminding ourselves that no political party or position is the kingdom of God, which frees us from the fear that a defeat of our party or position is a setback for the kingdom of God. And I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that what happens in uh, politics is unimportant because laws and policies have real impacts on real people. And it's worth working towards laws that reflect God's justice. But we should be doing that work because we are already citizens of a kingdom that has God's perfect justice, not because we believe that we can use the tools of empire, political power, to bring about the kingdom of God. Moving on to the second place where we can see conflict, money. I'm talking about power and money tonight. It's great. Um, we constantly see this clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world in the realm of money. And if I'm being really honest, uh, I, was, I was kind of reluctant to talk about money, um, partly because I don't feel like for myself I've fully figured out how to uh, not worship or not try to worship both God and money. So I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am to all of you. Uh, but of all of the places where the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdoms of the world, money is the one that Jesus himself addresses incredibly frequently. Jesus, uh, Jesus tells us in Luke 16 that we cannot serve both God and money. 
In Luke 18, we have the story of Jesus encountering a rich young ruler, and when this man asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life, what does Jesus tell him? Sell all he has and give it to the poor. And when the rich young man balks at this command, Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So as we consider the places where God's kingdom is in conflict with empire, I I think we have to talk about money. And a significant challenge for me, and I think for many of us, is to see money as a gift that God has given to us to use wisely and not as something in which I place my hopes for peace and security. And as simple as it sounds to just not place your hopes for peace and security in money, uh, I I can tell you from my experience that this is often harder than it seems, and I, I wonder if you have the same experience. Because the voices of empire tell us that our security and our happiness is located in our money, in our 401ks, in our checking account balances, And so we need to periodically ask ourselves which kingdom's values are guiding our relationship to money. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the rich young ruler, would we go away sad because we've placed so much of ourselves and our hopes for a good life in our money? Now, it's true that Jesus doesn't ask everyone he encounters to sell all that they have and give it to the poor. And I'm I'm not suggesting that God is asking that of you specifically tonight. But I think that honestly asking ourselves this question, would we be willing to sell all we have, might help us to see where we might be worshiping at the altar of money instead of at the feet of Jesus. And I also have to say, as I think about having a Christ-like attitude towards money, I'm grateful to be in a church where we have a lot of transparency around how we handle our finances, which is something we've all been reminded of recently as we are about to vote after the service tonight um, on our budget for the upcoming year. And I've had the privilege of watching our rector, Kevin, and the members of our vestry prayerfully consider how to best steward the money given to the church. And and from my perspective, it's clear that Church of the Savior does a really good job of wisely using money, seeing it as a gift and provision from God, um, and without having undue worry about obtaining more of it. And I also want to say to you, after I asked you to place yourselves in the shoes of the rich young ruler, um, that Savior is an incredibly generous church. You, You all give so generously and so sacrificially. So I want to say that I'm confident that you do think carefully about what it means to use your money in the service of the kingdom of God. But this is also a church full of middle class Americans in an affluent area of the country which means that we live in an environment saturated with empire's view of money, which is a view that encourages us to get as much of it as we can and hang on to it as tightly as we can because that will bring us happiness and security. But this is a view that pushes us towards worshiping money. And as Jesus tells us, we cannot worship him if we also worship money. So how do we deal with this? Again, asking for the purifying power of God in our hearts and in our institutions as we discern how to best handle money. We must be on our guard against the idea that peace and security come from money because the only sure source of peace is in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of mammon, and our security is in God alone. 
Now, I've talked a lot for the past few minutes about painful points in our lives where God's kingdom comes into conflict with the kingdoms of the world. But I want to take us back to the passage in Luke where we started. Because when Simeon sees the infant Jesus in the temple, he is filled with joy. Here is the one who is the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Here is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets and who brings about the kingdom of God. Yes, Simeon knows that a new kingdom does not arise without conflict. But because of who Jesus is, he does not leave us alone in this struggle. He leaves us with the Holy Spirit, who is working in us to cleanse and purify, to shape us into Christ-likeness, into children of God. Because we live in the already but not yet kingdom of God, in the in-between time when the kingdom has entered the world but is not here in its fullness, we are constantly pulled towards worship of the gods of empire, like money and power. But God is at work in us, forming us away from those powers and into the kingdom of heaven. And tonight, I just want to close by inviting you to lean into this work of formation, wherever the spirit may be leading you. Even when it may lead to uncomfortable conflict between the values that we want to have um, and those that so easily ensnare us with promises of comfort and stability. And so I want to close by quoting the Apostle Paul who understood as well as anybody both the external and the internal conflict between the kingdoms. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.